Good morning. So good to see you. My name is Kim Whetstone, and I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Parkview. And often people ask me, what does that mean? Well, basically what that means is I get to create opportunities for people to connect with each other and then to also grow in their relationship with God. Today we continue what is week three of an 11-week series that we are doing here at Parkview. And this series is called Two Ways to Live, Walk by the Spirit. As a church, as a body, we have decided instead of pointing the fingers at everyone else that we are going to take 11 weeks to open our hearts up to God and to ask God to search our heart and to help us know how we're doing with these fruits of the Spirit. Last week, Ray explored this idea of love, and he explained to us that love is an action. And love is an action that we live out because Christ first sacrificially poured out his love for us. He also explained to us that love serves as the basis for all of the fruits of the spirit. So it is out of our understanding of God's great sense of abiding love for us that we continue our journey today, exploring joy. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I have a bit of a sordid past with joy. I think that I know what it means and I understand it, but it is simultaneously nebulous and vague. I can spot joy when it's in my face, like when my son wakes up every snowfall during the winter at 5 a.m. screaming, Mommy! It's snowing! I can see joy then. But sometimes joy seems to evade me. When life gets tough, joy can even seem completely out of reach. Sadly, I think that our culture and even to a certain extent the church have conspired at times to perpetuate confusion around the idea of joy. The culture tells us that we need to get more, be more, and buy more to experience joy and that following the desires of our hearts wherever they lead will mean more joy. But yet we buy a new shirt or we find a new man or a new woman or we get a new job and we find that we are still longing for joy. Our culture sells us a brand of joy which is based on circumstances here one minute and gone the next. The church too has often falsely branded joy. We've sold it as some form of Christian super happiness. And so we tape these smiles across our faces and we meticulously go about the task of maintaining a facade that everything is great, that we're happy. Because if we acknowledge that maybe we aren't so happy, 
then someone might look at us and tell us that there's really no sense of spirituality in our lives, that maybe we lack faith. Or at least this is the lie that some of us have been told in the church. Sadly, I believe that it is precisely this lie that we must be happy, that at times has hindered the work of the spirit in our lives. It has silenced the deepest longing of our heart for more of God himself. So while most of us long for true joy, the question really is, what is joy? How do we experience joy is more than just fleeting moments? And how do we live with a joy that lasts? In Galatians 5.22, Paul uses a Greek word for joy, kara, which means cheerfulness, calm delight, or gladness. But beyond this word, did you know that there are over 400 references to joy throughout scripture? When we look at Genesis chapter one and two, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And in the midst of this act of creation, he creates men and women. And in all the amazing things that he do, he's doing, he stops and he looks at us and he calls us good. In all that's going on with creation, the God of the universe stops to take joy in us, in you and in me. In Matthew chapter three, there's this incredible Trinitarian moment and it's this moment at the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus is being baptized and we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and we hear the voice of God the Father from heaven. And God the Father looking at God the Son says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The God of heaven taking joy in his Son. And then if we look at Revelation 19, we get a glimpse of what is to come, a celebratory wedding feast. This wedding party initiates an eternity of joyful worshiping of God. It's our destiny. And reflecting on the biblical narrative, I believe that it is fair to say, as author and speaker Margaret Feinberg says in her book, Fight Back with Joy, that joy is our heritage, our purpose, and our destiny. In Genesis, we are created in joy. And in Revelation, we spend eternity in joy, worshiping God. But what about the in-between? As people who are created in the image of God, we are made to experience joy. It is precisely this truth that we are created in the image of God the one from whom all joy flows, that we know that joy is not only attainable, but it is actually a part of our spiritual DNA. Joy, though it may seem this way, is not out of our reach. It is actually within our grasp daily. 
This means that joy must then supersede the circumstances of life, whatever we're experiencing. I think that Feinberg offers a definition of joy that serves as a really good starting point in this discussion. She explains that joy is a spectrum of emotions, actions, responses that include gladness, cheer, happiness, merriment, delighting, dancing, shouting, rejoicing, laughing, brightening, blessing and being blessed, taking pleasure in and being well pleased. How is that for a tiny tattoo, right? <laughs> When we look at all the actions associated with joy throughout scripture, this definition makes sense to me. In some ways, I guess we could stop here. But you see, I believe that it is only offering us a partial picture of what joy is. My husband, who's a psychologist, has often encouraged me in the process of offering pastoral care to an individual. He said, Kim, those are the shoots. What's the root? In other words, he's saying, Kim, when you see the shoots, you're talking about the actions. These are the actions that you're seeing manifested in someone's life. But what is it the root? What is at the core? And while Feinberg offers us a great view of what the shoots are, I believe that we can find the root of joy. And if we can understand the root of joy, then it can take root in our lives. In Paul's letter to the Galatians and the chapters and verses leading up to the discussion of the fruit of the Spirit, I believe, I know, that Paul lays out for us the root of joy. Paul writes in Galatians chapter three, beginning at verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Then Paul continues on in chapter four and he writes, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption into sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. In the verses that follow, Paul goes on to say that we are known by God and that we have been set free. So why does this matter? Why this talk of sonship and freedom and to be quite honest, what the heck does it have to do with joy? As you may recall in our discussion of Galatians, Paul is in the middle of a theological hot mess. There are some Jewish teachers who readily acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, but who held very firmly to the belief 
that you still had to keep the rites and the rituals of Jewish law in order to inherit eternal life. It was clearly a Jesus plus works mentality. The proponents of this idea were known as Judaizers. The term literally means to live as a Jew. These Judaizers were following behind Paul in his missionary work, and they were preaching a fear-based gospel, a false gospel. And this left the Gentiles in Galatia, who for years had thought that their salvation was secure. It left them shaken and wondering who they actually were. Paul responds to this false teaching and the fear it created with a profound declaration of truth. First, he explains that the playing field has been made level in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Second, he explains that through the work of Christ's death, res, death and resurrection to new life, that we have been made heirs to the promises of God. In this, he affirms that we cannot lose our salvation or our standing with God by our obedience or disobedience to the law. Quite simply, we cannot lose our salvation based on our performance. But what I love about Paul is he could totally just leave it right there and walk away, but he doesn't. He goes on with his third truth and he calls us sons. The statement of sonship is extremely significant. It is important for us to understand the earth shattering truth that Paul brings to the table with this idea of sonship. Up to this point, sonship was always contingent on adherence to the law, on one's behavior, on one's identity as a part of the nation of Israel. The status of sonship was conditional. What is so significant about Paul is that he redefines sonship within the context of the gospel of grace. You see, sons had a legal right to the inheritance of their father. This is something that a slave did not have. Paul argues that in Christ, God through grace has irrevocably established our identity as sons and daughters of God. Paul thereby affirms that we are unconditionally loved that we have been saved and we belong to the God who delivers and restores. Quite simply, Paul affirms that through grace, the grace we find in Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing can pluck us from the loving hand of God. Nothing. If we believe this, the security of our salvation and our irrevocable identity as children of God is the root of joy. This leads us to what I believe is the truest, most foundational definition of joy. Joy is contented resting in the God of grace for our salvation. 
In other words, we walk through life with calm delight in contentment because we believe that God is actually who he says he is and we believe that we are actually who God says we are. And we know that he has not only saved us for eternity, but because he is our loving father and because we are his sons and daughters, he is actively delivering us and restoring us in whatever we might be going through right now. Do you believe this? Do you believe this grace is real? Do you really believe that you are an unconditionally loved son or daughter? Do you believe this? When the trials of life come, when the job is lost, when the bills pile up, when we face an unexpected diagnosis or loss, it doesn't take a Judaizer whispering in our ear to shake our understanding of our identity as children of God. Because when struggles come, often we're left asking, God, are you actually there? Do you see me? Do you know me? Do you have me? God, are you there? This is why I believe that as the Holy Spirit does the work of transforming our souls and making us more joyful, that we must ask a very important question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust God to bring salvation? Do you trust God to bring deliverance? Do you trust God to restore you with whatever you're going through today? Do you trust him? A couple years ago, I was going through a really challenging time in life. I had two close friends, my two closest friends actually, betray my trust in a way that was heartbreaking. It left me wounded and exhausted. On top of that, it was a really busy season here at Parkview. And I was coming off a season of seeing over 900 people go through my one woman department in one year. I was tired. My husband had just moved out of state. He was gonna be gone for a year to complete his doctoral residency. Full-time pastor, full-time mom. I was exhausted. It was one of those seasons in life where financially, relationally, emotionally, the punches just kept coming. Have you been there? 
It was in the midst of this season that fed up, longing for God to break through the silence that overwhelmed one night. I ran out on my back porch at 2 a.m. in the morning, determined that I was gonna hear from God. And as I went out to my back porch to try to focus, I laid everything before God. I got myself quiet. And then I heard all this noise in the bushes and in the trees right next to my house. I tried to look to see what was going on, but it was so dark I could only see my hand just a few inches in front of my face. I tried to calm myself down again. Okay, God, I'm just gonna focus. Only to hear the noise in the woods get louder and it was clearly coming at me. So out of an act of sheer cowardice, I ran into my house, locked the door and went up to the second story of my house where I decided that my time alone with God and nature would be done from the window of my second story bedroom. And it was in this moment that I became very aware of the fear in my life, how much I was feeling from that moment, but how much it was a greater reflection of how I felt about everything else that was going on. And it was in this moment that I looked out over my backyard and I saw that a heavy fog had descended. And the reason I couldn't see what was going on in the woods was because of this heavy fog. It was also in this moment that I looked down and saw that it wasn't a serial killer that was coming after me, rather it was a couple of raccoons just taking a late night snack. But it was in this moment that God chose to break through the silence. And he said to me, Kim, it doesn't matter if you can't see. I can. I know the lay of the land. Do you trust me? Just a few days later, I began having some pain in my left eye. Seemingly no big deal. I just chalked it up to allergies. But over a period of days, the pain worsened, producing tears and yelps of agony with even the slightest movement. My vision began to change. Doctors ignored, practices refused referral, insurance companies abandoned me, and every doctor refused to see me. Day by day, hour by hour, my right eye developed this steady haze. But in my left eye, royal blue became baby blue and red became pink. As my vision declined, I remember spending hours in the church parking lot one day studying raindrops on a leaf memorizing what the veins of the leaf looked like slightly magnified through that drop. Taking it in thinking, this is something that I want to remember. Every day I would take my children, I would grab their faces and I would pull them close enough to mine where I could see their faces. 
And I would try to memorize their smiles and memorize the look in their eye thinking, man, if this goes all the way, I want to remember, maybe have some idea, some idea of what this is going to look like on their wedding day, of how my son's going to smile when he sees his bride. As the days passed, colors faded to gray and then to white and then to black. Kim, it doesn't matter that you can't see. I can. I know the lay of the land. Do you trust me? After numerous medical battles, we found an ophthalmologist who diagnosed me with a condition called optic neuritis. I was told to set up an appointment with a neurologist who would just tell me what my treatment was going to look like. It was going to be in and out, a simple appointment. Go in, they're going to give you a script, you'll be on your way. Well, as I went into this appointment with the neurologist, she explained to me that I had 75 days that I was going to undergo treatment and then I had 75 days and whatever vision I had left at the end of that 75 days is what I would have for the rest of my life. And then she turned her back to me and she decided that she was going to read the MRI that was on the screen. So she began reading it aloud, all this medical lingo that I couldn't understand at all. She read it aloud and then she nonchalantly said, you have MS. And then she began reading aloud again and this went back and forth three times. You have MS, you have MS, you have MS. It was at this point that she ordered me to stand up and walk heel to toe from one end of the room to the other. And as I stood up, I went to place my foot one in front of the other and I fell to the ground. And she picked me up. And she ordered me to do it again, heel to toe, heel to toe, one end of the room to the other. Determined not to fall, I focused intently, telling my leg where to go, telling my body what to do. As I put one foot down, I brought up the other one and fell again. Powerless. It was at this point that she explained to me that MS is multiple sclerosis. It's an incurable disease that affects your nervous system. It can take away your ability to talk, to walk. It affects your memory and it can even change your personality. She then went on to explain that there was no cure. Kim, I know the lay of the land. Do you trust me? God was good to restore my vision almost entirely. He continued healing long after the doctor's 75-day deadline. In the nearly two years since my diagnosis, I have experienced more medical complications than I care to count. Some of them have been connected to the MS, and some of them have been connected to the other health conditions that emerged after my diagnosis.
I've lost control of my entire body at times as it has chosen to move or not move as the disease dictates. I've been unable to use my hands and I know well the daily patterns of pain, numbness, fatigue. I've known the side effects of medications that have left my whole body swollen and covered in blisters, unable to feel my arms and legs, or simply just writhing on the floor in pain. I continue to battle this beast who has continued to toy with my vision at times and also steals my ability to speak. But again and again, God has given me more opportunities to trust him. And when I have struggled, he has carried me and he restores my joy. With each flare up, he gently uses these challenges to help me release my grip on my life and to surrender to him, to trust him. With each opportunity to surrender in his grace, God takes root in my heart. He plants more deeply that idea of joy and I receive a greater manifestation of the shoots of joy. Better living in the present moment, laughing with my children, crying honestly in delight or in sorrow as I rest in the grace of the God of my salvation, knowing that I am a loved daughter. Recently, I went on a retreat, and in the um, nine days leading up to that retreat, I lost my ability to speak and to move four times. I was exhausted, I was frustrated. And to be quite honest, I was scared. And the question that I was asked on that retreat is, what is God inviting you into for this retreat? And as I prayed and I sought God's face, he said, relinquish. God was inviting me to relinquish fear to relinquish my frustration with this disease and the things that I don't know about the future, to relinquish, to relinquish all of it. I don't know what you're going through today, but each of you grabbed a stone on the way in. The stone is to symbolize whatever it is that you might need to relinquish to God today so that you can embrace the inheritance that he has given you, the joy that he extends to you as a loving father. So you can take some time to pray. And then when you're ready, you can take your stone 
and you can come up and place it in the bucket as a sign of surrender and of trust to our God. Today, again, I relinquish fear knowing that you and I are sons and daughters of God. So, to remind you, he knows the lay of the land. Do you trust him? Will you trust him? What you lay down at God's feet today to him wasn't just a stone. He saw your heart through every bit of it. And as a freed son and daughter, he is happy to take it up and carry it for you. So know that he is received all the burdens that you've laid at his feet and that he is actively in the process of delivering and restoring you because he loves you. If you're struggling to lay something down today and you want someone to pray with you, at the end of the service, there are going to be some members of our prayer team up here ready to walk with you to take you through the feet of Christ. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you do split the seas so that we can walk right through them, God. That you indeed drown our fears in perfect love. So God, today we receive our place as your sons and daughters. Lord, help that truth to boldly and deeply take root in our lives. So that through the shoots that come from it, our lives can be a declaration of your grace and your goodness and your sovereignty to a dying world. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.